This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Where are we uh, on the path towards energy transformation and, and tackling the problems of climate change? And, and, and how quickly uh, do you think that we can achieve some of these, these targets and, and goals? There's a tremendous amount of scientific debate on what the potential was for something called uh, President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative. Uh, it was pejorative. So it's conceivable that a regulator would simply say, look, the market will do this eventually. And my answer is, no, it won't, for the reasons we mentioned before. Hello, I'm Chris Moyer, Senior Director of Content and Research for Z Prime. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Ralph Izzo, Chris. CEO of PSENG. Ralph, thank you so much for, for sitting down and talking to us about the changes happening in the utility industry. Uh, and, and we're going to talk a little science as well. I look forward to it, Chris. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, it's great. So PSE&G is the largest utility in the state of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, operations in Long Island as well. Right, right. And you're the CEO. Right. But you didn't start at, at CEO. Where did your career, what, what brought you to the utility industry and where did your career begin? So, so my career began in academia after doing some graduate work in mechanical engineering and then uh, plasma physics, which was really fusion energy. I became mesmerized by energy security issues. This was in the 70s when our energy dependence on foreign fuels uh, was a critical item that motivated a lot of our foreign policy. So I pursued a career in fusion energy research because the fuel for fusion energy is seawater. And uh, it didn't look like uh, we would have to worry about foreign dependence on that. So, so, so my original fascination with energy was from a national security point of view. In your time as an academic, uh, as studying energy, right. was, was climate science ever uh, something that, that came, was of concern to you yeah, at yeah, that time? Yeah, so interestingly, so I, I was a doing postdoctoral work at Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. So it really was focused mostly on energy security, as I said a moment ago. But soon thereafter, I became interested in public policy. At the time, uh, there was a tremendous amount of scientific debate on what the potential was for something called uh, President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative. Uh, it was pejoratively referred to as a Star Wars initiative. So I went to Washington to, as a physicist uh, to work on public policy and uh, ended up spending a fair amount of time on environmental issues as they related to energy instead of the SDI initiative. When I came back to New Jersey, it was a one-year fellowship program, I then went to work for the governor of New Jersey who was approached by a NASA scientist named Jim Hansen on, uh, who was beginning to really raise the alarm bells about climate change. And Governor Kane was all in in terms of the concern and actually embraced a m mantra that I think he invented, although maybe we stole it, which was think globally but act locally. So that was back in the 80s. So it was at that point that I began to become interested in climate change. And it was more from an energy conservation, uh, materials uh, reuse and recycling point of view, so you don't have to keep making products move away from a disposable society. So my initial studies were not about climate change, but very early in my professional career that, that come to my attention and, and wanted to be more involved in it. It does seem that we, we are coming a little bit full circle on this, of uh, the, the reduction and, and energy conservation, 
but reduction of, of all types of things that, that we use as a material society. It, it's starting to bubble up to, to the conscience uh, of, this, of society again, and I think that's a profoundly good thing. I completely agree. I mean, you're, you're hearing climate discussed in the context of lifestyle writ large, and I think part of that's because we went from uh, power production being the dominant source of carbon dioxide to now na nation, nationwide, I think it's a close second, uh, transportation being number one. So you hear a lot of us talking about decarbonizing the power sector and then electrifying the rest of the economy. And then you hear people talking about dietary habits, the, the advantages of, of more of a vegetarian-based uh, eating uh, pattern versus a, a meat-based pattern, uh, uh, locally sourced foods versus uh, distant transportation of food. So I think you're beginning to recognize, many of us are beginning to recognize that it's not just about uh, do I replace my coal plant with a renewable plant, which is certainly an important thing to do, but how else do I lead my life? Now, there's a, that continuum of, of opportunities to, to have a more sustainable society. That's correct. And, and we can all, from the individual to the largest corporation, have an impact in that. That's exactly right. And, you know, and I have to tip my hat to uh, the First Lady of New Jersey, uh, uh, Tammy Murphy is trying to uh, modify our K through 12 educational system. Because I remember as a child, I mean, I didn't put my seatbelt on and I didn't necessarily think about uh, reduce, reuse and recycle. But, but once we put that into the educational system, uh, my children, they're militant about, <laughs> about all of those issues. I mean, yeah, so, so I, at home, our recycle bins are far more full than our our landfill destined trash bins and you cannot leave the driveway without putting your safety belt on. So, so getting important concepts built into the, to our school systems and into our educational systems and the importance of this not only creates a more informed citizenry for later on, but really starts to affect the lifestyle changes. So uh, Mrs. Murphy's doing a great job of that in New Jersey. You know, as we, as we talk about the, the, the potential for behavioral changes that, that impact the individual but the, the corporation. What, from your perspective and from your chair, what are the most pressing issues related to climate science right now? So I think one of the ways that you get people to change their behavior or think about their behavior is by sending them a clear signal. And what's missing uh, throughout our society right now is a clear economic signal of the challenges associated with emitting carbon and the benefits of not emitting carbon. So we've been big advocates of getting a quote price on carbon. And that can mean different things to different people. Uh, we're not religious about whether it needs to be a carbon tax or cap and trade system, but a recognition that, th that when you burn a fossil fuel, it's not free. And that when you subsidize renewables, you ought to think about where am I with respect to the natural resource and is there a better choice that can be made by maybe having the resource located somewhere else and then transport it to me through a transmission line or things of that nature. So unfortunately, the absence of a clear price on carbon, I think we're not maximizing our environmental dollars. As a matter of fact, I know we're not maximizing our environmental dollars. Well, that, that kind of leads into the conversation about policy and regulation. And we obviously in the United States and even globally have a disparate uh, system. What are some of your thoughts about uh, national policy or, or state and local policy that can, can better drive 
that incentivization towards a, a more thoughtful approach to climate science and energy transformation? Yeah, I, I like to look at what the National Academy of Sciences has done. These, these are individuals, men and women, who are our best and brightest. And they've done seminal surveys on the research as it pertains to climate. And the number they've come up with in 2007 dollars, which you can then inflate using whatever percentage you want, I tend to use 3%, to current dollars, which says that the social cost of carbon is $50 per ton. Now that's fraught with assumptions and I'm sure it could be challenged, but it's not gonna be $5 and it's not gonna be $500. So 50 plus or minus some range is a reasonable estimate. Well, if we would embed that upstream in our fuels, you'd have people making different choices about whether or not they buy an electric vehicle or an, a gasoline powered vehicle. You'd have investors making different decisions about whether or not to refurbish a coal plant or to switch to a natural gas plant or to invest in a renewable plant or to preserve existing nuclear plants. And I think you'd have much greater incentive on the part of folks to be more energy efficient, which is my favorite poster child for what we ought to be doing to maximize our environmental dollar. Well, let's talk about energy efficiency for a moment. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it is, uh, renewables have captured the imagination right. a little bit when right. it comes to the media and, and society. This is a great opportunity for a clean energy transition. Right. But how crucial is energy efficiency to, to, uh, in, in, that, in that, uh, that part of the equation? Well, depending upon your time frame and uh, your assumptions that you make, energy efficiency can, can be anything from a significant to a massive contributor to, to a climate change mitigation. So, but it suffers from many well-documented challenges. Uh, there are known market impediments to energy efficiency. Economists use fancy terms. I'll try to repeat some of them, although I'm not an economist. I mean, there's opportunity costs, there's agency issues. You know, a university, which has been in existence for 100 years and is going to have the same physical plant for the next 100 years, doesn't put their money into making their campus more efficient because that's not the way in which they attract top researchers and top scientists and top scholars. The way they attract those folks is by refurbishing their labs, improving their office space. Uh, hospitals, same exact story. They're not going to put their money into reducing the number of kilowatt hours per square foot. They're going to put it into state-of-the-art medical equipment. So these are opportunity costs that increase the, the obstacles to, to, to folks who would be natural investors in energy efficiency because the payback will be well within the life of their assets shying away from it. And you can repeat that example for the homeowner who's going to invest in their kitchen before they invest in an efficient heating system. So we argue that the utility, who, which has been fabulous at providing universal access to so many different attributes, be that uh, telephony or, or, or electricity, is the natural investor for energy efficiency and bringing universal access to it because, because it's well proven that through energy efficiency, you can both lower bills and lower usage and therefore lower emissions. So that, to me, sounds like a win for the utility, uh, for the environment, and, and most importantly, for the customer as well. Exactly. Right. And I'd add a fourth category to that, Chris. I agree with you on all three of those. We also say it's a win for the employee because many energy efficiency, efficiency jobs are uh, heavily dependent on labor. Unlike the photovoltaic panel or the large uh, offshore wind turbine, which is very capital intensive because of the material, mm -hmm. 
In the case of energy efficiency, we're replacing light bulbs, thermostats, caulking windows. Uh, there, the material expense are not high. What's more expensive is the amount of labor involved. So you do create jobs which are, uh, I don't want to use the word low skill, but are easily trainable. Sure. So, so you have a quadruple win. You nailed the first three. It's the customer bill goes down, the environment is better off, we as a utility have an investment opportunity, but we can also employ many people in doing it. That, that's, that's very exciting, and, and I want to talk about a, another exciting uh, initiative, but a little bit also sure. from, the, from the challenges related to in investment in mm -hmm. clean energy. Mm -hmm. You know, with the idea of $4 billion being invested in, in, clean, in a clean energy future, what are some of the, the, the greatest opportunities, but, but some of those challenges to, to seeing that, that future come to fruition? Yes, yeah, sadly, the biggest challenge is getting regulatory approval. Uh, in, in fairness to regulators, much of that $4 billion investment, the vast majority of it is energy efficiency. Uh, a second piece is advanced metering infrastructure. A third piece is electric vehicles, and a fourth piece is battery storage. Other than the metering infrastructure, None of those are natural monopoly services. So it's conceivable that a regulator would simply say, look, the market will do this eventually. And my answer is, no, it won't. For the reasons we mentioned before, uh, energy efficiency has been something that President Carter talked about when we had our first oil crisis, right? And, and by any metric, by any metric, the U.S. is an energy hog. And sadly, New Jersey is worse than average when it comes to comparing ourselves to other states. So in New Jersey, we really have not done a good job on energy efficiency. We're number seven or number eight in installed solar capacity. Based upon our stated goals, we're going to be number two in offshore wind. And to be below average in what is an energy hog of a country is not something to be proud of. So our biggest impediment right now is getting regulatory approval for those programs. Uh, I know we're perfectly aligned with Governor Murphy, so philosophically, ideologically, we're moving in the same direction but getting the details into uh, programmatic implementation has been a challenge for us. Well, I, I do want to touch uh, briefly on, on renewables as mm -hmm. well. It is an important part of the equation. I, I think we can both agree that energy efficiency is an underreported and underrepresented part of that equation. But PSE&G has been a leader in renewables for a long time now. Right. Uh, you mentioned that New Jersey, uh, seventh or eighth in the country in terms of installed solar capacity, right. second long-term and offshore wind. What are, uh, with, with respect to, to renewable energy, what are some of the, the, the biggest opportunities uh, are, are that, that you're leading on? So we, we've invested about $2 billion in, uh, in solar energy. We are uh, in the process of partnering with Orsted on offshore wind. Uh, so we are enthusiastic supporters of, of renewable energy. We do issue a word of caution as to the pace and the location of the implementation. So for example, even though I think New Jersey should be proud of its efforts in solar energy, a lot of New Jersey solar energy is rooftop. And there's no shortage of evidence that grid-connected solar energy is far less expensive and much fairer. Most rooftop systems tend to be on the homes of individuals with uh, above average per capita and uh, annual income. And candidly, it still has to be substantially subsidized. And it's typically subsidized by the entire customer base, which at worst or at best is the average customer. So you have the average customer, and in many cases, the below average customer, and I'm just talking about socioeconomic terms here, subsidizing the more affluent customer. That's highly regressive and needs to change. Now, New Jersey is committed to doing more community solar. 
that program hasn't gotten off the ground yet, and we're going to be big champions and advocates for that. Uh, I'd much rather see more uh, grid-connected solar where at least the subsidy that's paid for by all is enjoyed by all. That at least will be the case with offshore wind, right, because that will be grid-connected. Uh, but if you had that price on carbon, then you would see New Jersey, I think, buying more wind from the Appalachian and Adirondack regions of, of Pennsylvania, uh, or buying more offshore wind from our sister states, be that New York or Massachusetts or Connecticut, which will also have their fair share of offshore wind, and probably steer away from rooftop solar, which is really expensive to do. It, it does have a tremendous impact on the grid, that, mm -hmm. that's clear. I'm glad you touched on, on this, this subject of equity, and, and we, this is something that we're very passionate about at C-Prime as well. How can we as, as utility professionals and as a society do more to increase the benefits of, those, of clean energy technology right. uh, across the economic spectrum? Right. right now, Teslas are very cool. Solar panels on roofs, very cool. Yeah. But, but how, can, how can the average consumer benefit more from, uh, and, and low economic, low, low economic yeah. consumer benefit more from, from renewables and, and clean energy? Well, unfortunately, you see this in so many places, right? New Jersey just was proud to announce a $5,000 tax credit for people who buy electric vehicles. Well, who's going to buy that forty dollars to $80,000 vehicle? New Jersey has grant programs for solar rooftop owners, which we talked about a moment ago. Candidly, I think you've got to get away from tax credits and grant programs because the beneficiaries of tax credits are people who pay lots of money in taxes that's not your lower income groups and the beneficiaries of grant programs are still those folks who have the upfront capital to pay the non-grant component of whatever investment they're making be that a rooftop solar system or an efficient refrigerator and I know this sounds very parochial and it sounds very self-serving but if you're worried about universal access to these technologies, go to the entity that has delivered universal access, and that would be a regulated utility. We can be directed as to which customers to serve. In fact, uh, we've run some very modest energy efficiency programs, which we're trying to expand tenfold, but are waiting for regulatory approval to do that. And we've run them at low-income communities. We've run them in multifamily dwellings. We've run them in public institutions that everyone benefits from hospitals, government buildings, educational institutions. So we're the one entity that can be directed in terms of the markets that we provide these services to and the customer demographics that get served. And I think that that would be the most effective tool at bringing these important uh, services to those who otherwise won't be able to enjoy them. As we wrap up here, I would really appreciate your perspective on, uh, you know, this is, this is a time of incredible transformation right. in our industry. Harkening back to your time uh, as, as a scientist, where are we uh, on the path towards energy transformation and uh, tackling the problems of climate change? And, and, and how quickly uh, do you think that we can achieve some of these, these targets and, and goals? S sadly, I think we're not on an aggressive enough path. When you think, I mean, so once upon a time, we used to talk about global climate change. Now, of course, because we are all pressed for time, we just call it climate change. So when you think about what we're doing in New Jersey, it's a fraction of percent of the carbon emissions in the world. And when you think about the standard of living that we enjoy versus the standard of living that people do not enjoy in the developing world in sub-Sahara Africa, 
as we begin to lift those living standards, which, which is essential for international prosperity, global security, uh, peace writ large, you're going to have that much of a greater burden placed on our ecosystem. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an economic price signal in the United States that allowed us to, to have the incentives to develop the technologies to bring forward both supply and demand technologies and storage technologies that would allow us to then be the leading exporter of those technologies as we, as we watch those, those demographics uh, raise themselves up, which we want to see, right? Just for, this, for our own national security and our own uh, peace and prosperity going forward. But absent that economic signal, we're just going to build the same gas plants we've built in the past. We're going to avoid the economic efficiencies that are associated with energy efficiency. Think about the digital revolution taking place in this nation. New Jersey is 48th in the nation in advanced metering infrastructure. Even those states that have developed advanced metering infrastructure have not used the richness of the data to help their customers use less energy. If you could automate consumption in a home such that people's bills are lower, and I'm not talking about so that they're shivering in the winter or sweating in the summer, so they're equally comfortable but their energy is managed more intelligently instead of having a dumb meter that nobody pays attention to, we can make phenomenal progress and not worry about the carbon loading that gets created as the rest of the world aspires to the standard of living that we enjoy. And I think that if we create that economic stimulus here in this country, we have a really bright future for ourselves and for the rest of the world. Well, I, do, I really do like your, your, your vision on the, on the four winds uh, uh, for, for society when it comes to, to this change. I really appreciate you sitting Thanks, down and, and talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris, for having me.